0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
0: This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from End of the Year Show, where we take a look back on 2019 and maybe look a little bit forward into the next year about to happen. Peter Greenberg here with you. Earlier this year I sat down with the Prime Minister of Poland, Mr. Morawiecki, in Warsaw to talk to him about a project we did called the Royal Tour of Poland, still airing, by the way, on PBS. His views coming up. As many of you know, for the last 18 years... Uh, I have produced a special series of global television specials called The Royal Tour, featuring heads of state, where I actually go to, to sitting kings, presidents, or prime ministers and get them to give me six days of their schedule unencumbered. And then during that next six-day period, I'm not the tour guide. I'm the, guy, I'm, I'm the tourist. And <laughs> the head of state is actually my guide through his or her country, seeing it through their eyes. And the most recent Royal Tour, which premieres on many PBS stations this coming Monday, April 22nd, is Poland, the Royal Tour. And I'm joined now by the Prime Minister of Poland,
3: my tour guide, Mateusz Morawiecki. How are you, sir? Peter, it's uh, a great pleasure to be with, here with you.
0: You know, as I said to you when we, when we first met, when I grew up, I was watching Poland hmm. on black and white television. And then even when my parents got a color television, it was still in black and white because the images that were being projected from Poland were not necessarily uplifting. They were gray, they were bleak, uh, Soviet domination. Uh, so imagine my surprise, and the surprise is so many of my other friends who were travelers, when I went to Poland, it was like, my God, it's not like that at all. You had a radical transformation. But it was like that when you were growing up.
3: Yeah, it was. it was like that. To understand Poland, we have to actually go back to the... The one specific date almost exactly 80 years ago, 1st of September 1939, when Poland was invaded by Germany and by the Soviet Union, and everything changed since then. Because six years later, Poland was not on the right side of the Iron Curtain, so to say, and we could not have appropriate impact on our life. The, uh, Poland was part of the Soviet empire. And, and this is why you saw all this in black and white, and rightly so, because it was not only a very inefficient economic system, but it was also a system full of violence and fear and a totalitarian system.
0: In a, in a way, you had a society that never thought they could because they weren't allowed
3: were not not allowed and and uh, m- lots of uh, opportunities uh, for development have been wasted during the 50s and the 60s and during those times many poles uh, were actually, actively fighting for independence uh, because uh, we knew that independence is a prerequisite for normal development. This is why uh, my grandfather fought during the Second World War and my father fought against communism uh, during the 60s and 70s. And you too. Um, and later on, I, I joined the so-called Fighting Solidarity Organization, and but Fighting uh,
0: Solidarity what, didn't mean you were fighting.
3: Fighting, were not fighting, n- fighting, nor not violently, not with weapons. Uh, fighting was. Uh, the, the, the weapons of those times was uh, predominantly leaflets and newspapers and um, uh, books printed uh, where uh, we uh, presented the true history and features of the communist system from the economic point of view and free markets. So we, we kind of were teachers for the society back then. You
0: were the king of the mimeograph machine. You, yeah, were,
3: you, you, were may, you were, might say yeah. so. I, I was actually printing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of those leaflets hour after hour. But the police caught you. The- oh, many times, yes. I, and uh, this was not a very pleasant uh, experience because I was beaten many times uh, there were lots of police people in my um, home they were trying to exert pressure on my family um, uh, threatening us with uh, lots of very very nasty things and I had three sisters so I, I have three sisters and I was uh, very much in fear of, of their fate
0: Exactly. And at the same time, you weren't even seeing your father for most of this time. No,
3: no. I, n- n- for, for all of m- the 80s during the martial law and when he was hiding uh, un- in underground, yeah, I, I was not able to see him because it would be very dangerous. I was, I was simply um, interrogated quite often and, uh, and uh, I was... It became uh, almost like a theater. Uh, well, <laughs> well it, was a, it was a dance not a pleasant you knew you'd get one. <laughs> caught,
0: they'd interrogate you, yeah. then they'd release you, and you'd do it again.
3: Yeah, but when I uh, stood in front of very important exams in my life, we, which is at the in Poland at the end of the high school, I had to, so to say, invented commas, hide in the hospital because I knew that they were going to uh, take me to the two-day arrest just for the days of the exam so that I could not pass them, so my mother... Uh, took care of this, and he, together with our aunts, they put me into hospital. I was I was quite healthy back then, but <laughs> <laughs> I had to spend a couple of weeks. Uh, and then you stuck out and took the, the exams. Yes, and and directly from hospital, I was, uh, I was taken by the ambulance to the exams. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but let's go back before 1939, because one of the other things I discovered in researching this project, uh, the royal tour of Poland, is that you have a rich 1,000 plus year history. Yeah. You were a kingdom. People forget there are more castles in Poland than anywhere else except Wales. I mean, you got,
3: everywhere <laughs> I look, there's another castle. Yeah, that's that, that's true. The the region where which I come come from, uh, so called Lower Silesia, east west, east western part of Poland, there are many. Every village has a castle, you might say. So a very rich history. Uh, we we also are a little bit boastful, saying that, but but which is which is quite true that we were. Um, together with the United Kingdom, probably we, could, we should share this honor, uh, the inventors of democracy, because we uh, we had a, a Sejm, which is the first parliament in the um, 15th century. In the 16th century, it developed a lot, and um, the biggest po- part of the population of Polish population was actively taking, uh, actively participating in democracy during the 16th, 17th, and the 18th, 18th century.
0: Of course, when you talk about castles. Then you have something you have to defend, and everybody was invading Poland. I mean, oh the, yes, every, yeah. I mean even the Danes. The, 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 everybody showed up. The,
3: the, the Swedes, the Germans in particular, the Russians, of course, the Tatars, Mongols. Uh, started in the 13th century with Genghis Khan. The P- Poland uh, geographically is placed on the so-called big, uh, great European plane. So it's easy, relatively easy to invade it everybody from the West. Went and from from everybody went through Poland. Everybody went through Poland. And uh, we were kind of uh, uh, effective and efficient in, in, in defending our independence for 800 years. But towards the, uh, uh, the end of the 18th century, three superpowers of those times, Prussia, Russia, and uh, the Austrian Empire uh, attacked us at once and we uh, surrendered. Oh, we 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 actually were conquered. I mean,
0: to me, looking at the World War II history, you know, you had the Warsaw Uprising, you had the Jewish Ghetto Uprising, but what was amazing to me was that you won, and then the Soviets captured you.
3: Yes, well, like uh, it's not entirely true to say that Poland won the Second World War because we were completely destroyed, completely no, I'm told, I'm told devastated. I'm about the uprising against the Germans. Yeah, well, the, the, Ger- the yeah. uprising uh, was also not successful because the, the Germans, one, yes. the, the first one, the, the, in the Jewish ghetto, and then the second one, which was even bigger, was also not successful. But from the point of view of our uh, national identity, uh and national, they pride. And, and national pride they are extremely important the stalin uh red uh, stalin's red army stopped at the vistula river during the warsaw uprising because they didn't want to help polish patriots to fight against germans which was which was very uh, uh hypocritical you know hypocritical uh, yes. um, but uh this is why the germans defeated us in the in the uh, august and september of 1944
0: well Many, many years later, the map still hasn't changed, has it? You're still where you are. You still have Russia, Ukraine. I mean, you're bordered by a lot of interesting neighbors, (laughs) all of whom have had a history of coming through Poland.
3: But these days it's different because we have uh, democracy. We have uh, restored peace in Europe. And the European Union is a very good thing. Uh, Those in America or in some parts of Europe who wish the European Union to break down to fall apart uh, do not sh- do not wish the transatlantic community well because the european union is not an e- not, not easy to to uh, for for many participants but it's the best what could uh, could happen for for europe and this is why we work hard to maintain to preserve the stability and unity of the european union as a partner in the transatlantic uh, community, and I could not think of a better um, community uh, than the United States, Canada, and and the European Union. So what uh, you're together. saying is
0: you're better together than alone.
3: Absolutely. United we stand, divided we
0: fall. Exactly. We're talking to Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki of Poland. And when we come back, I want to talk about what we did together, because you okay. took me all over the country. And we did see a few castles, didn't we? Yes. <laughs> At the top of them as a matter of fact. Absolutely. It was amazing. You and I literally crisscrossed the country and we only saw maybe a quarter of it when you think about it. But we hit or, some or less. Or, much th- less. Oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we put a lot in those six days. Oh yes. Yeah. I mean Anormous. what was amazing to me was going to your hometown, which I'm still learning how to pronounce. So tell me how I'm doing this. Russlaff. Russlaff. Okay. <laughs> I mean an amazing complete restoration of, of a city in terms of its architecture number one right I mean that the church there, the clock right <laughs> all of that amazing Copernicus right but this is also where you fought in with solidarity. Yes, well, like, you were going to
3: school there. Uh, absolutely, I, I, I went to school there. I, this is the this is the city where first, uh, as you as you mentioned, Copernicus, the, the famous Polish astronomer, uh, was actually spent uh, uh, some time in Wrocław. And the lunar well. clock still works. And and then <laughs> the lunar clock still still works. And uh, this was set up in 1580s, so uh, much uh, much before the Mayflower hit the uh, coast of the United States. So you're trying to say you were
0: ahead of us. Well, uh, much ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll take Yeah, that.
3: and then um, then of course where the mm, uh, Lower Silesia region was uh, reconnected to to Poland and was very important in the um, in the transfor- during the transformation uh, process which began in 1989. Just a little digression I uh, during the 80s nobody would have believed that the communists is going to f- to fall so 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 quickly. Uh, so I, I wanted to be a teacher, a teacher of history. I wanted to teach uh, true history, but then a transformation started in 1989, and many of us requalified to do different uh, jobs, jobs. I mean, I remember, you know, I grew up
0: in the Cold War. I never thought they were going to go away. It was, it was the, you know, yeah, the hammer exactly. and sickle. You it yeah. was there. And then all of a sudden, in about a one-month period, it completely fell apart. I mean, it, it went away
3: so quickly, I don't think even the West was prepared for it. Uh, no, you're right. What was critically important was the resistance, resistance of the so-called solidarity movement, uh, which was actually a trade union, but trade union fighting for independence, so an awkward species and, and um, in, in during the 80s, the war uh, in Afghanistan, together with the Solidarity Movement, was uh, more and more difficult not to crack for not the Soviets. Me- not to mention Berlin. Well, like, many people think here that something started in Berlin, but nothing started in Berlin. The Berlin it war, ended in Berlin. It, it ended in Berlin. Berlin, uh, the, the reunification of Germany, could not have happened without solidarities. This is why the Germans thank us for what has happened in the, towards the end of the 80s. And then, of course,
0: all around that area, uh, and then in Krakow, of course, which is essentially, it, it's its own world heritage site. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing city. All the preserved architecture. Yeah. And yet, you know, Wrocław, Wrocław, I'm going to pronounce yeah, no, right? No, no, it. right? Yeah, that was perfect. I did okay? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you guys okay. got beaten up in World War II. You, had, you yeah. have a lot of destruction there. So as you go through Poland with me, we're
3: seeing everywhere that got destroyed, but then everywhere that got rebuilt. Yes, and, uh, and to tell you the truth that the rebuild process started right after the Second World War during the communist time. There were kind of the double uh, reality, one, the one, the political reality which ninety five percent of the pop- of, of, of the population hated and uh, disapproved, but on the other hand, people, started to live their lives, and they, they rebuilt uh, the, the towns, the cities, they started to, um, uh, to work in this um, inefficient uh, system, um, but we've lost lots of opportunities and wasted lots of time, 45 years.
0: Before we run out of time, I think I should tell everybody that I went to the University of Wisconsin, I'm a Badger, you went to Northwestern, you we were at Kellogg School of Management, so you were hanging out in
4: Chicago.
3: Yes, I spent some time in Evanston, in Northwestern University uh, doing some executive programs. Um, and uh, I still have lots of good friends uh, g- coming from those times. But that was your opportunity
0: to also see America.
3: Yes, uh, and I spent a lot of time, you know, uh, well, like several weeks traveling with my family across different national parks in particular because I always uh, admired all the Bryce Canyon, Uth- the canyons of uh, Utah, Arizona, the Yellowstone Park, Yosemite in California, uh, Nevada, and so on. And you drove across? Yes. All the United and United you States. camped, and we camped in KOA. <laughs> do you know such a camping? <laughs> I place? know KOA. I absolutely do. So every night, uh, every are you week, a good are you a good camper? Come. We are a very good campers. You can ask my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm you not a camper. No.
0: I love the great outdoors, but I also like a nice suite at the end of the day. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm pampered that way. But no. But the point is, you were roughing it out there, huh?
3: Yes. Yeah, in uh, Colorado uh, rivers and and lots of other places. Uh, One of our most beautiful place where we would like to come back is the Bryce Canyon, I think in Utah, in the state of Utah. That was your favorite? Yes, this was our favorite. Why? Well, because of, you know, what the nature chiseled out of those rocks was absolutely gorgeous. And, And the light. And the light and the colors, everything, fantastic. Toto, I
4: have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
0: One of the regulars at this summit, in fact, one of the regulars on this show, usually get him on the phone, somewhere on a, on a cell phone, somewhere on the planet, but now I actually have him right here in person, is the is the CEO, President, and Head Dishwasher at the United States Travel Association, Roger Dow.
5: Hey, Peter, it's great to be with you. As always, a lot of dishes to wash these days.
0: <laughs> Indeed. One of the things that happens at this summit um, is... Looking at the real numbers, the hard numbers—not just U.S. numbers, but global numbers—but global numbers affect the U.S. Mm-hmm. What's your takeaway from from this summit?
5: My takeaway is that this industry, the travel and tourism industry, is continuing to be one of the fastest-growing industries in the world. Uh, one of five new jobs are coming from this industry around the world, and it's, it's so important that's why countries like China look at travel and tourism as a pillar for building their workforce and. Creating jobs, uh, but I also think that's a good news. And the bad news is a huge labor shortage. I'm very concerned about getting the workers to work in hotels and restaurants.
0: First of all, you know, it's and you talk about it in the United States, right? Because look, if you go to a restaurant in Italy and you sit down at the table, there's a 95 percent chance that that waiter who's serving you, that's his profession. That's his. It's it's this. It's, job he loves to do or she loves to do. That may not be the case in the U.S.
5: No, the U.S., uh, many times our servers are people that are on their way somewhere. Might be a student going to college, might be somebody in between jobs. And so it's probably split. There's probably 50% of the waiters, waitresses are full-time and the other are on their way somewhere and short-term. So they don't have that career and that long-term training and that uh, will to serve, so to speak.
0: So, what's the solution? More education possibilities at the university level or what?
5: I think the solution is uh, getting people to understand that this travel industry has a tremendous amount of opportunity. I don't think there's a high school teacher in America that's talking about you should become a, pers- a travel and in- industry executive. You should be a lawyer, a banker, a fireman. But they don't talk about it and they don't understand. This is one of the biggest industries in the world. And we've got to get that fact down there that this is the way you can build a career and build wealth for your family. Now you talk about shortages, where are you seeing the shortages? Uh, we're seeing them everywhere. Uh, the, uh, the big cities, uh, areas where technology is big, uh, the wages are much higher uh, for entry level people, so they'll go elsewhere. Uh, the finding uh, summer resorts, uh, the ski resorts, uh, don't have enough people to operate the lifts. In California right now, they've got enough snow to be open almost all year round, but not enough people to work the lifts. Well, that's a lift crisis. It's a lift crisis.
0: (laughs) No, but but how do you fix that? Because uh, are they being priced
5: out? I think they're being priced out and uh I also think there's not the uh, understanding of how you can come in, work at a front desk, and all of a sudden, 10 years later, be running your own hotel. Uh, I don't think people look at this industry as long-term. I think a lot of people look at, oh, it's the the school job you have or whatever. And I think we've got to teach people that there's such a big opportunity here. And I think we've got to look at immigration. I mean, let's face it, uh, we've got to get some kind of comprehensive immigration reform because uh, we do need the workers in this industry. It's very labor-intensive.
0: Well, you've got an immigration crisis worldwide. You have an immigration crisis right here in Europe, where we are in Spain or in Poland or in France or in Germany. They haven't addressed that. You have a Brexit crisis where people don't even know know, who they're reporting to, so Mm -hmm. to speak. And then you have the immigration policies of the United States government, which are at best right now confusing.
5: Yeah. And the other shortage when to talk about jobs is I think we're going to face a huge pilot shortage. Uh, one of the challenges that is happening is the the long-haul pilots that fly these big planes across the oceans uh, are all retiring. And there's not the pipeline because- uh, Well, you they, know
0: where the pipeline yeah. used to be? And, and you and I are both old enough to remember that. The pipeline used to be the military. Sure. I mean, you go into the cockpit of a plane 20 years ago and you just ask the guy, who would you fly for in the military? And they'd tell you, I flew an F-4 for the Marines or I flew an F-5 for the Air Force. The military is not the job recruiting agency that it used to be because a lot of the military in terms of aviation is drones. You have gamers out there uh, operating uh, drones all over the world, but they're not producing the pilots that the airlines need.
5: Well, not only that, a lot of those pilots came from regional carriers and all yeah. that. And the regional carriers, quite frankly, a starting pilot doesn't make a lot of money. There used to be you know, a huge amount of money, but there's been pressure on wages. So th- those people come out of the military are saying, I'm going to go elsewhere. So they're not even starting at the regionals. Right. So how do you fix that? Same thing. I think we've got to uh, get people to understand it's a career. They've got to increase the pay levels. Uh, I want the most experienced person in the cockpit. I no mean, kidding. Look, look at what's going on with that whole uh, 737 MAX. Uh, a lot of people are saying it's a combination of technology and pilot training.
0: As we continue our conversation with the president and CEO of the U.S. Travel Association, Roger Dow. And now we're right here in uh, in Christopher Columbus's town of Seville, Spain, talking to Roger Dow, the chairman of the USTA. You know, we talk about a pilot shortage. I see a number of airlines starting their own flight schools now. In, in the Gulf area, uh, a number of the Gulf carriers are starting their own flight schools, which means they'll train anybody from scratch. You can be a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, and you can become a pilot. But they, they do intense simulator training, and, and you could do it. But the pipeline is not what it used to be.
5: It's certainly not. And, uh, it, and it's a great career. I mean, the opportunities today globally. That's one of the great things about the travel industry, Peter, is you can work anywhere. If you're in the U.S. and if you're in technology, you better be in the Northeast, the Washington Corridor, Austin or the West Coast. If you're in Oklahoma, you're not going to work in technology. But in the travel industry, you can be in Fargo or Fort Lauderdale and have a job. And that's one of the great things. Or around the world, in Sevilla. You can be here in Sevilla and have a job in the travel industry.
0: You know, the, the WTTC numbers are that travel and tourism provides, what, one in every 10 jobs. But more importantly, one in every five new jobs. But you see, some countries, that number is even higher than
5: that. Uh, it's going to go to one in four, they predict, in 10 years. And that's the question, where are we going to find these people? We've got to start the pipeline. I even, uh, talking to the Boy Scouts and saying, why don't we have a Boy Scout badge for travel I mean who needs to (laughs) rub sticks together and make a fire these days but travel you opens up the world to you so you go from be prepared to be ticketed there you go I got
0: I just want to try to help you out Got
5: all these one-liners
0: no but when you think about it you take a look at a lot of the Boy Scouts they're already traveling with their
5: parents so why not I mean my children, and uh, all of our children, have traveled all over the world. My daughter, when she was in mid, middle school, spent a summer here in Sevilla, Spain. My son did a, a summer in Africa. When I was, international travel to me was maybe to go to the beach at the Jersey Shore. Uh, now these kids travel over the world, and uh, it's a huge opportunity to open up the world to them where we've been so focused when we grew up on just the US. All
0: right. that's the challenge in the jobs market, but you have a bigger challenge in the government market, and that is getting the governments to understand this as as well.
5: Really have to get the government to understand that this is a prime mover of the U.S. economy. Uh, you're starting to see, you know, a huge percentage of GDP. Travel in the U.S. is $1.6 trillion. It's the biggest industry by, the only other bigger, bigger industry is transportation products, which is like Boeing planes. Right. So if you put them together, it is the industry that fuels the economy. But folks in uh, government, they look at us as the fun boys and girls, the folks that have fun and, and vacation. They don't understand. This is dead serious about jobs, about the economy. And you can do both. You can have fun and you can build the economy.
0: Now, you come from the hotel business, right? Right. You, when, when did you start at Marriott?
5: I started uh, when I was in college as a lifeguard at a Marriott Hotel. <laughs> it was the number six Marriott Hotel. And I'll never forget, the general manager said to me, why don't you go to work for Marriott when you get out of school? He said, someday we could have 100 hotels. Marriott now has 7,000 hotels. Whoops. You missed it by a little bit. Yeah, but wait, you were there for how long? I was there 35 years, and uh, what an exciting time it was. I know. Here's the question
0: I ask you now as someone who's now on the outside looking in at Marriott. When you have that kind of growth, and also that kind of consolidation, because remember, they got the 7,000 because they also absorbed Starwood, correct? right? How do you maintain quality? How do you maintain defining your brand? How do you define when you have 32 different brands? How do you do it?
5: I think that's the biggest challenge these large brands face, is how to keep it personal, how to define it at the property level. Because in reality, uh, which I love Marriott's great company, I look at Hilton, but they're also becoming real estate companies. And they're really about building real estate for their shareholders. And the question is, you've got to do both. You've got to get that down to level, and you've got to make it important for the general manager. In my mind, the general manager of the hotel is the most important person in the chain. He
0: personifies the, the whole hotel. Exactly. But here's the thing, how do you define your brand if you, I mean, I mean, how do you justify your rates if you can't define your brand?
5: Well, and defining that brand, when you say 32 brands, that's a challenge. Uh, what is the difference between a Fairfield Inn and a Hilton Garden Inn or a Choice Hotels? What is the difference? What, and I think that's the challenge that these brands are going to have is really carving out what makes them unique and how people can understand the purpose and why they should go to one brand versus another. Well,
0: I have this feeling and I have nothing to base it on. But if you have 32 separate brands and we can't answer that question of what what makes one different than the other, there will come a time in the not-too-distant future where we'll have fewer brands.
5: Well, I think that'll be the case, although uh, one of the things you have with these large organizations, you have things called trading areas. So you will say to a franchisee who owns, let's say, a Fairfield Inn, there'll be no Fairfield Inn within so many miles of your front door, but you could have another brand five feet away
0: which is owned by the same company owned by the same company so they're gonna to have to redo their agreements because they can smell that one coming
5: it's coming right? big time.
0: i mean what's the point of having a residence in on one corner thinking that you're protected when all of a sudden a four points which is the old sheridan brand opens up next door and it's owned by the same company
5: correct whoops and, and what do you say if you're a rich carlton the luxury brand that marriott has and the same reaches right across the street
0: and they have that right now right they do not only that, in certain cities, the new combined Marriott Starwood controls something like you know 56 percent of the inventory.
5: I look at cities like uh, Boston as a a a city where the the Marriott brands have over 50, 60 percent of the inventory, which is good news and sometimes bad news. Exactly. So we have to get more people than more jobs in fewer brands. <laughs> there you go. We solved it, Peter. W- what a future,
0: <laughs> Roger Dow the chairman of the United States Travel Association. Thanks for joining us here in Seville. Always a pleasure. If you are continuing
4: on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If
0: you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. Coming up, our conversation with Elaine Shalino from The New York Times and the author of an amazing book on the history of The River That Made Paris. The Seine, in the interest of full disclosure, goes back with me many, many, many years when we were both correspondents for Newsweek covering the world. She then went on to become the Paris bureau chief for the New York Times, and then guess what happened? She lived there, she stayed there, and has authored so many amazing books about that city. And the new one is coming out just this week. The Seine, the river that made Paris, and her name, Elaine chulino Hello, Elaine.
4: Hi, Peter, it's so nice to talk to you again.
0: You know, it's interesting when you talk about travel books. There, there are three kinds of travel books: memoirs that bore me, destination pieces <laughs> that are overly promotional, and then a book that's written by somebody who actually lives there, and that would be you. And, and 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 look, you did another book called *The Only Street in Paris*, which I loved. We've talked about that on the on the show before. *The Seduction*, which is great. Um, and but this one. You know, I, I people always ask me where my favorite places are in the world, and I, I always give them the same metric. And and the metric really has something to do with water. And it's I always have to be near the water. And so every I remember my very, very first trip to Paris. I was twelve years old with my parents. And what did we do? We went down the Seine in the Baton Mouche. And I'll never forget it. Was it very touristy? You bet. Did I love it? I got to tell you, I did because I was on the water. And when you're on the water, you see a city from a completely different perspective.
4: Well, I can tell you that, yes, going on a Batomouche uh, tourist boat is very, very touristy, but there's nothing I like to do better at night. I'm not saying this in front of my husband uh, is uh, <laughs> then to uh, go on a batomush boat when it's dark at night because it's spectacular you see all of the bridges all lit up and it's it, there's nothing like it anywhere in the world
0: now answer this question because I don't know the answer and people are always asking me how long is the river
4: it's it's 483 miles long if it were straight it would be about half that length but it curly cues uh, uh, especially from Paris to the sea. And you don't see that in Paris because it's just kind of a curve. But there are wonderful, uh, very, very um, dramatic uh, twists and turns to the sand.
0: And does it get get very deep?
4: It does. It starts out like just little springs that spring up from nowhere uh, in in a a plain uh, deep in Normandy, and it's uh, just sort of squishy water. And then, as it moves west towards the sea, it it takes in all these other rivers. And so, the, by the time that you get to uh, the other side of Paris, and then Rouen, and then and then the sea at Enfleur and La Havre, it's extremely deep and extremely broad.
0: Given the title of the book, of course, I have to force you to explain it. Why did the Seine make Paris, and how did it make it?
4: Well, there never would have been a Paris without the Seine, because Paris uh, was founded on the island, the Ile de la Cité, in uh, Gallo-Roman times, more than 2,000 years ago. And it was a fortified island and uh, uh, a safe uh, haven, and it it expanded from there. And everything about uh, the Seine revolves around uh, Paris.
0: And, of course, you go down the rivers, that's where commerce was. That's where trade was
4: and it still is. In fact there's a move now a sort of green movement to use the sen again uh, for transport of goods. Uh, a supermarket chain is using it for example to to transport foodstuffs because it's uh, a lot cheaper and a lot cleaner than uh, river but tra- train traffic or or road traffic.
0: You know it's interesting if you ever want to judge a city about how it comes back to life sometimes check it out the rivers. I was just in Warsaw and the Vistula is coming back to life, and it's living proof. I mean, it, it springs to life now. Everything has grown up around the river. When it used to be ignored during the days of the communist occupation.
1: Look, at the, right. Detroit,
0: look at the Detroit River. I mean, look at the, 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 the uh, Cuyahoga River in Cleveland. At one point, it caught fire. Uh, and right. now And now it's, it's, a, it's a big part of that city. Uh, and, of course, I mean, to give some historical perspective, just in terms of recent days, as, you, as many of you know, I'm a fireman in New York, and I watched with horror and also with a certain amount of, of comfort when the French firemen actually fought the blaze using the river water. They were actually pumping from the sand when, when Notre Dame caught fire.
4: And, and it was one boat that pumped half the water that put out the fire.
0: Amazing. So I mean, now I have got, to say you yeah, have to yeah.
4: you you've, you've started me on so many different things. I want you to know that the sand is clean enough that I drank from the sand and I went swimming <laughs> on, in the sand. Come on, you drank from the sand? I did at the source of the sand. It's so it's just this wonderful clean spring that that comes from deep uh, underground, and uh, I drank sand water and then I actually swam. I have a picture of me swimming in the sand.
0: And you do not glow in the dark, and you do not froth at the mouth. <laughs>
4: Well, we're not doing this on television, so you can't see what my <laughs> face looks like, all bright green.
0: <laughs> are people going back in the river? They must be.
4: Well, people people are coming back to the river, and Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, was so determined to get the Olympics here for 2024 that she staged this incredible multi 1000000000 dollar um, uh, campaign, including having Olympic divers... Uh, diving uh, into the sand, uh, and then, uh, and then, even in Paris, so that she wants to make the sand swimmable again.
0: For people listening to the show who've been to Paris before and think they know it, or for people who've never been, is there a part of the river that you want them to start at to to really get yes, the most? Yes, I want of them to this?
4: start at the source, and I want them to discover uh, what was once uh, a Gallo-Roman healing temple dedicated to a goddess named Sequana, and her statue, a Gallo-Roman statue, is in a museum in Dijon. People came from all, pilgrims came from all over the Mediterranean, from what is now the English Channel, to uh, uh, deposit uh, uh, ex-votos or votives into this huge basin and be healed. And that's, uh, you think you know France, you think you know the Seine, You go there, and you're going to discover an entirely different river.
0: And other than the Bâton Mouche, how did you go down the river to do this book?
4: Well, I hate to drive, and uh, my husband loves to drive. So uh, I and and uh, so and I have a terrible sense of direction. He has a great sense of direction. So we drove up and down the Seine, the whole route. We actually also walked parts of the Seine, and you can bike. Uh, parts of the Seine as well. Uh, And then, uh, of course, I went on the river from beginning to end. Uh, I actually went on a very um, elaborate cruise on the Seine from from Paris uh, uh, east towards uh, the sea.
0: And can anybody do that?
4: If you have enough money, anybody can get on (laughs) one of these wonderful cruises, yes.
0: (laughs) But the point is, Um, these are regularly scheduled boats.
4: There are regularly scheduled ext- and and there are more and more of these luxury cruises that start at Paris and go um, and go towards the uh, towards the sea.
0: What all you can bi- eat and
4: all you can drink.
0: Uh oh, obviously, and then all you can remember. Uh, but what <laughs> what was your biggest surprise in, in researching this book that you had no clue about until you discovered it about the Seine? What was the, what was the big revelation?
4: Gosh, there were. Many. I mean, I I had no idea that there were more than a hundred songs written about the Sun. You know, I had no idea that there had once been three hundred islands on the Sun, and now there's about a hundred and seventeen. Um, I had uh, I had no idea about the uh, the, the goddess uh, Sequana, who, according to legend, uh, turned herself into um, uh, water to avoid the um, being ravaged by 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 Neptune, the, the sea god. Uh, there are just—I just, had no idea that Verrazzano, the Italian explorer that, who's who's got a bridge named after him in New York, um, uh, started his journey to uh, the United States uh, on the Seine. Uh, I had no idea that um, that Robert Fulton uh, uh, tested torpedoes in a submarine on the Seine.
0: <laughs> and of course, I, not, I had no idea that you could hang that many locks on bridges on the Seine. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, he's been banned.
0: I know they've taken him down. Although you know
4: what, they sell. They, 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 The city of Paris has auctioned off parts of the, uh, the, um uh, the, 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 the gratings from the, from the uh, that you have well. the locks on them. Yeah, I would have bought one. I,
0: I would have bought one. I thought that was cool. I really didn't think it was cool. Too, too bad they weighed so much. They became a structural nightmare. But uh, I love that idea. The name of the book, by the way, the Seine, the river that made Paris. <laughs>
1: baby beside me at the wheel cruising and playing the radio
4: with no particular place to go okay it's time to commit 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself At Byte.com, that's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. He's the editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly, also a regular on our television show, The Travel Detective, Arnie Weissman. How are you, sir? Good. How are you doing, Peter? I'm going to give you the buzzword of the day, the week, and the year. It's the same buzzword uh, and something that we're all talking about. I don't know if we're doing anything about it. Over tourism.
2: Yes, that is an issue that certainly has the industry's attention. Uh, It's recognized as a threat, to be honest, by by, by the travel industry. Barcelona.
0: Venice, Dubrovnik, Greece. I um, we, we go Rome, yeah, yeah. Uh, Florence. Uh, recently, in in Venice, they actually banned the cruise ships from the, from, from from docking directly yes. at Venice, right? Right. And now they they have to go f- in Rome. If you sit down by the by the by the Spanish Steps, you're going to get fined. Yeah. In Florence, if you sit down to eat on the street, you're going to get fined. Or you, yeah. Yeah. I think it's even if you walk down the street uh, with an ice
2: cream cone, you have to watch it.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And that's really difficult in Florence. It's everywhere. <laughs> every five feet in in Florence, there's another gelateria. Uh, And then, of course, Mm -hmm. you have um, uh, Barcelona saying they don't want to become another Venice.
2: Yeah. It's, I mean, the the number of tourists rising has been phenomenal over the last decade. Lots and lots of factors contributing to this. Um, Among them, the rise of the middle class in India and China has, uh, you know, travel is seen as a right to be exercised as soon as you have the the means and uh, free time to, to do it. And everybody is taking advantage of that. What it, looking forward right now, 10 million people board an airplane every day. It, by 2035, that number will rise to 21 million, according to uh, IATA. And they'll all be in the center seat. Yes. No. We'll be in the center seat. So, um, but what's contributing to this, uh, in addition to just simply more people traveling, uh, are a lot of other interesting factors. So, you have social media. Uh, There is a. a cliff in Norway, which uh, ten years ago, before Instagram, had um, f- I think it was uh, less than a thousand visitors uh, last year. It had forty thousand visitors, and to take that "I'm alone at the top of the world" picture <laughs> exactly requires a lot more editing with that many people around you. But it's I mean it's just astounding. Uh, how what an influence that social media has had in drawing attention to places. And the other, perhaps, uh, major factor are the low-cost airlines, You know the Ryanairs, the EasyJets, who have opened up cities um, that had previously not really drawn too many tourists because they figured people will go where it's cheap to go. They'll land at a city that may not be convenient to where they're going, but
0: relatively convenient. Well, listen, if you take Ryanair and you want to go to Venice you end up landing in Treviso yes <laughs> which is an old Italian air force base where they have a bus for you and 45 minutes later you're Piazza Roma right and then you can get on the, the you know the the, the vaporettos and, yeah. but the point is there are a lot of people on those flights
2: yes and the i mean what and what the brilliance of what they've done is is that the landing rights in the secondary and tertiary cities is a fraction of what they would be if they actually were landing closer into Venice sure and uh, they pass a portion enough of that savings on to a traveler that they can have fares that nobody can match. But if you take a look at certain
0: times of the year, infrastructure
2: capacity is exceeded. Yes, absolutely. And so that's what's happening. And, and the other thing that's interesting staying on Venice for a moment, Venice has lost 30,000 residents in the last 30 years. So a thousand, a thousand people are just moving out because they're, they're being replaced by tourists. There's already a multiple of the Population uh, of, of visitors, multiple of, of the number of people live there, but now there's the people who live there don't have the infrastructure, the hardware stores, the the things one needs to live in because everything gets taken over by a tourist, a gift shop, uh, something that's catering to tourists, and so the the resentment doesn't begin to come close to describing the feelings that people have about these places, and it's it's, it's interesting also that the 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 cities have for years, of course, been desiring increased number of tourists because they collect taxes. And uh, one thing I just learned that I thought was really interesting is that if that tourism taxes in New York City, if those were not collected, every resident of New York would pay $2,000 more in taxes to get the same city services. So cities are not really, they're, they're in a bind. On yeah. one hand, they want to keep the residents happy. On the other hand, they want the revenue. Of course, one of their
0: solutions, which I don't think is particularly genius in the long term, is, oh, let's just expand into the off-season. Mm. We'll, we'll, we'll just get people to come here between October and March. It doesn't really work that way.
2: Yeah, no, and it, I mean, if you look at um, most people who understand uh, the, the rhythms of tourism are not going to want to go to Venice in August. And Virtuoso, the the group of uh, high end travel agents, actually did a a study that showed their uh, clients have always traveled off peak because they're smarter. Yes, (laughs) and they they they, they have more money, they have more free time, they uh, they have more choice and flexibility. Um, So, but they're right. I mean, and they also have the agents who know don't go to Venice in August.
0: There's a difference, I suppose, between the words overcrowding mm-hmm. and your favorite word overwhelming.
2: Yes. And that is that is what has pushed the the over tourism discussion forward. Is there's always been destinations that were overcrowded. There's always been places where you go, wow, you know, there's just a lot of people. My here. very
0: first trip at the age of twelve with my parents was to Europe. It was in July and August, right? Mm-hmm. And Rome was overcrowded then. Yes. But
2: now it's overwhelmed, and, and and what what the difference also is there's there's some other f- tourism is increasingly in your face if you're a resident, and a lot of the contribution for that has been frankly home sharing, Airbnb, VRBO. Uh, they have brought tourists into neighborhoods that never used to see tourists, and what's worse, they are displacing residents. Professional property managers are. As soon as a lease is up for a renter, they, they're seizing it. they are just saying we're not renewing you. And and apartment buildings are turning into hotels, which also has the effect of depleting the inventory, raising rents for the residents who once again they didn't ask for all of this. They they if, if you are making your living on tourism, fine, the more the merrier. But if you are not, yeah. you are just seeing inconvenience, you're seeing more expense you're seeing traffic jams. There are some intelligent solutions being applied. And it's not just go somewhere other than the city center. I mean, that certainly is, is, is a strategy a lot of people are doing. I mean, look, at one
0: it. point last year, the city council in Venice even was entertaining the idea of putting turnstiles in St. Mark's Square.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There are, there are, in fact, gates now over certain areas in Venice, certain times of year where they just are saying, we need to relieve the pressure. We need to leave, relieve the congestion. The most intelligent solution I've seen is Buenos Aires. In Buenos Aires, they are not yet in an over tourism situation. They are still trying to get more people. What they are also doing is they're making a big effort to collect the phone numbers, tech, the, the mobile phone numbers of visitors, as well as interests. They are using real time data from congestion. Uh, traffic and things like this, sending notifications to people, this might be a good time to go here instead of there, you
0: know, directing them to places that are less crowded at the moment. Of course, I will give you the devil's advocate answer to that, which is so many travelers perceive themselves as elitists. They'll say, yeah, that's for all the other schleppers. I'm still going to (laughs) go. Well, I mean, there is the problem of if you
2: are within an hour of Venice, are you going to not go if you've never been? Right. You're going to go. And and so there is that aspect of it. But if but part of what they're doing in Buenos Aires is they're also collecting people's interests so that they can send the notification, not only go over here, you might go find here it, where but go there where, happening. where something's happening that you right.
0: like. I, I, right.
2: That was a very good solution. But, you know,
0: I love the idea of going to Slovenia because if we look at it on the map. It's only 30 minutes from Trieste and an hour from Venice. And I tell everybody, base yourself there. Now what do I hear? Slovenia has an overcrowding yeah. problem
2: Ljubljana yeah it, it 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 too I mean what's the the it's a question of volume Peter I mean there's just so many more people and there are so more many more places that people perceive as being I got to go there and they see again they see the Instagram feed of their friends and it is beautiful. It's been edited and all of that. But uh, they say, I want to go there and take that same
0: picture and put it on my Instagram feed. And when you go there to take that same picture in Venice, the bridge of size becomes the, v- the bridges of thighs. Yeah, I mean,
3: I mean Depends I, how tall you yeah, are, baby. It's <laughs> bad. It's
0: bad. I mean, the real problem is, and I'm a big contrarian traveler in that respect, I do like the off-season, um, like many of those virtuoso travelers. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to Paris to get a suntan. Why wouldn't I want to go in November, right?
2: Well, and th- and you know, there's some advantages. Paris is an example. Saint Petersburg, an example. You may have shorter days for sure, but there are no leaves on the trees. You begin to appreciate the architecture. Yeah. I mean, you can really you can see more in some in some ways, in when you go off season.
0: And you know what? Fewer lines meets better service. Yeah. In many cases, better better money deals, and a better experience So you have a chance to actually have a conversation with people as yeah. opposed to just standing in line. Yeah, and 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 in general
2: service is better because people aren't just trying to move move you along and uh, they're actually happy to see you in some cases.
0: Anywhere I can go where I know going into it that they don't have a gift shop, that destination becomes or that experience becomes so much more attractive to me. And you know, I do a a series on television on PBS As part of my travel detective show called Hidden Gems. And it's a place that, or a place within a city, or an experience within a city that doesn't have uh, a brochure, that's not in the guidebooks, that the locals know about, that's accessible to you. That to me is a really good, compelling reason to want to go. And now I add to that mix three more words no gift shop. You like that idea? I think it is a guarantee that
2: you're going someplace that does not see many visitors. And if you're going someplace that does not see many visitors, you're going to have, almost guaranteed, a more authentic experience. You're going to uh, be—there's going to be less contrivance. There's going to be uh, less— I'd say less preparation for the arrival of visitors, which is also kind of an interesting, uh, it, has, it might be a double-edged sword in some ways, but I was recently, uh, and I was surprised I think it's the first time in, in memor- recent memory, certainly, where I was stayed at uh, the best ho- two hotels in the city, and one of them, which I thought was actually better, did not have a gift shop, and that was in area in Salmon Islands, the uh, capital of, of the Guadalcanal Island, and Uh I actually just wanted to run down and get some toothpaste. (laughs) And there was there was no shop of any kind in this. But I'm not talking
0: about toothpaste, I'm talking about refrigerator magnets. Yes. By the way, (laughs) I've run out of space in my refrigerator. We're done. We are done with refrigerator magnets. But think about it. No gift shop means you actually get to experience a place without running through retail. Running through merchandise. Yeah.
2: And I mean and when you think about uh who are the masters of gift shops, it is disney right oh all the
0: theme parks you have to yeah. go through retail when you get through the ride right and it's and and there they
2: were the first ones who cleverly put the gift shop at the end of the ride right. when you were still very excited and of course they saw you a photo of, of yourself on the ride and it's already there by the waiting and things like that and you know and and i i would certainly not knock disney for its uh for almost anything i think they do a brilliant job on so they do. many things uh but they are also uh it, for lack of a better word, artifice. They are 100% built for tourists. And what you're saying, I think, is you want to go 100 to some place 100% that is not looking at at drawing tourists.
0: Right. I don't need something that's already contrived or or configured. I want some place that just exists. I mean, for years, Fiji to me. Was more preferential to me than Tahiti because it was less developed. You had so many different outer islands and you know, the two motus and stuff. No gift shop, you know. Yeah. No gift shop. Yeah. I mean, I really miss that. Yeah. Fiji. And Fiji. I was
2: just there this summer. Uh, does have gift shops? <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. But. What is still there, which is amazing, is that the, uh, the spirit of uh, is, is a nation of extroverts. You will hear a sincere boula everywhere you go. And uh, the I think that the emotion that you are looking for is still alive and well, even despite the gift shop. It is. And
0: by the way, if you're looking for the best um, unbelievable harmonies uh, sung in churches ever, mm. you've got to go to Fiji. And and the churches do not have gift shops, (laughs) although you may have to sing, which is okay. It's part of the deal. Is there a place right now, other than maybe the Solomon Islands or maybe certain islands of Fiji, that stand out to you as still the genuine, authentic opportunity without hordes of people?
2: I think there's a couple that are still there. I think, uh, although I keep hearing more about it, which makes me a little bit nervous, Ethiopia is still a fantastic destination which has uh, treasures that you can still see without hordes of tourists. Uh, Bhutan, even though it is on so many people's bucket lists, has made such an effort to not let tourism interfere with its cultural heritage. Uh, People sometimes resent, why do I have to have a guide? And the reason they have a guide is not only because it employs someone, but it keeps people from jumping into a religious ceremony taking a selfie. They are there to interpret what you're seeing. They're there to make sure you behave appropriately, and it works. I mean, it, it, if you look at the counter example, Nepal. Nepal was in the 1980s when I visited Nepal. It was very much like Bhutan is today. Not today. Not any longer. I know. No. Oman is another one. I think Oman is, is a fantastic destination.
0: It still is. Yes. It still is, and I recommend, there are no, to my, to my best recollection, there are no gift shops in the Musandam Peninsula <laughs> that I know of. You're going to be swimming with no. dolphins. You're going to. It's it's just amazing. It's still untouched. Yeah. Uh, that. But the list gets shorter every year. Yeah. I know. I'll give you one in New York. I have one in New York with with. I mean, given the concept. Yeah. Of no gift shops and nobody ever goes there. Right. That's Staten that's Island. That. Oh yeah. Yeah, they've got plans for Staten Island. I know <laughs> Okay, get
2: to Staten Island now. The ferry's still free.
1: Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight four thirty eight. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard
6: this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now.
1: Spot.
0: Joining us now, a conversation that we had with Mike Boyd, one of our regulars on the show and the head of the Boyd Aviation Group, a great prognosticator on the world of airline travel for the year 2020. My next guest, a regular on our show, usually by phone from some distant remote location, but now I have him actually in the studio with me uh, from the Boyd Aviation Group, the venerable, legendary Mike Boyd. (laughs) Thank you very much. Did you like that introduction? That's a
7: great intro. I mean, it's wonderful.
0: Recently in Las Vegas at your annual aviation forecast, Uh, I was in the audience and listening to you, and you came up with a number that was pretty staggering about the airport infrastructure in China and about the number of passengers that will be traveling from China and within China. Uh, And let's start with just the airport structure. I mean, the Shanghai Airport alone, I mean, the numbers that you were coming up with in terms of their real estate and their operations and where they're going to start flying was staggering.
7: They're adding 83 gates in a lump. We, we have very few airports in America that have 83 gates. And those and are just
0: the gates they're adding.
7: That's just what they're adding to the existing Pudong Airport. So it gives you an idea of the kind of growth. I mean, our, our forecast shows in 2020, China's airports, and they only have about 210 of them, will handle 1.4 billion passengers. That's in and out. And, yeah. 1.4 billion. And where are they flying? Most are domestic. There's a big chunk going international. The challenge with international travel... Out of China to the U.S., China has no connecting hubs to speak up. We do, but if someone in Hefei, China wants to go to anywhere in in in, in the in the states, they've got to have a, a dual connection to some place to get a nonstop. And three big airlines don't have hubs, so you've got to do a multi-stop trip to get to New York. Are you surprised by
0: that? That a country that big with that that number of people hasn't figured out hubs?
7: Well, well, let's let's keep in mind they only started this process 40 years ago. So they're, they're late to the game. Yeah, they're late to the game. And keep in mind, Montana has more than Half as many airports as all of China. So China only has like 200 and some airports. Now they're building them, yeah. and the ones they built, they suddenly explode. There's one in Xinjiang they built uh, about 2012, and they went from zero passengers to 250,000 passengers today. It's huge, and it's and and look, it's growing exponentially. Exponentially, and there's and when you look at the challenges, you can't interline in China. For example, if you're going to fly from A to B, make a connection to another carrier, you got
0: to get your bags.
7: You got to get your bag, check in again. They're trying to implement it now, but that's a problem. And then the fact that, you know, there's right now today we're carrying, they're carrying, they're generating about 15 percent of the total traffic that would come to the U.S. if they had a more open system that they're developing. It's it's incredible. We're talking right now it's down six percent this year, but you're looking at three million people. It could be more like about 30 million people when it opens up. And the Chinese,
0: the number of Chinese passengers is going to exceed American passengers now.
7: Yes. Our, our forecast shows by roughly October of 2021, uh, the government in Beijing can open up the bubbly and start celebrating because they will be carrying more passengers, not more emplainments, but more passengers will be generated than the U.S. So what
0: are the, what are the challenges for American passengers with this knowledge?
7: Well, it's the same thing for an American passenger. Getting around China can be a problem sometimes. And in, in, in China, like America, hasn't really opened itself up as well as it could to, to U.S. Better They've done a better job opening up to U.S. customers, than we have the Chinese customers. But still, if you want to take a trip, let's just say, from Zhengzhou to Hefei, it's going to be a hard thing if you don't speak Mandarin. Right. Now, in this
0: country, we haven't seen a new airport in more than 25 years. That was Denver, right? Right. Now, we are fixing the Salt Lake Airport. We are improving LaGuardia. I mean, there's, there's money being put into the infrastructure. But my prediction is, at the end of the day, in about a year and a half to two years, when they reopen the brand-new LaGuardia, you'll have a brand-new, gleaming, brilliant, congested airport.
7: Uh, guaranteed. Absolutely guaranteed. It's in New York. But let's, let's keep in mind, th- there are differences here that I, I, I brought up you know, a, a while back. America has over 4,000 airports. And every one of those airports is a future node of communication as we get more drones and new logistics and all that. So we're kind of ahead of the game. Yes, Beijing has a new airport. Uh, Turkey has a new airport in Istanbul. We've got Worland, Wyoming. And that is not an inconsequential airport because it opens up a whole section of our country. China would love to have our airport system. Well, let's talk about, (laughs) you can talk
0: about Wyoming, Uh but the bottom line is, we're not opening up new airports in this country in terms of huge airports. We don't have the real estate. Correct. And even if we did, we're talking ten years from now, right? So, what does that do in constraining U.S. airports, uh, U.S. airlines in terms of their expansion?
7: Well, you know, it, it it depends on where people want to go. Keep in mind, the average aircraft size is growing. You know, if from roughly two thousand seven to now, you know, there's there's about twelve percent fewer flights in the sky because they got five, more seats in the air. More seats, and it's not just bigger airplanes. It's more seats on every airplane. But that's one way they're, they're dealing with it. I mean, there, there, there are no small airplanes coming out of manufacturers today. The smallest thing in five years would be the A220. Seven, the A220, and that's 100 seats. Right. There's nothing smaller than that. The old 54-seaters are gone. They're all gone because they're, they're not economic. And keep in mind, the 50-seat jets we've had, we only had them because the taxpayers in Brazil... You know, it got shafted with a with a privatization. Same thing with the people up in Canada. So the, with
0: Embraer in Canada. With, with yeah. Embraer in
7: Canada. So the costs of developing that airplane were never paid for by by the companies involved. So that's why we have it. But right now, today, we do have. We see a system happening. For example, Boston. We see Providence becoming another terminal for Boston. Well, Providence has always been my secret Boston airport. It, it, you see, you've discovered it. Yeah. It, we. Well, I'll give you an example. We did an analysis for them. Uh, a Chinese airline that wants to fly to Boston could save about $400,000 a year flying into Providence rather than flying into Boston Logan. That's how much the difference in cost is. Wow.
0: Now, speaking
7: of uh, different locations, let's talk about aircraft type. The A380, it's going to go away. Well, eventually it will. I mean, it's, it, it's going to stop. Uh, the manufacturer will, the last one will come off the factory line in 2021. And then they'll start to get retired. The problem with it is, unlike some other airplanes, the next time you see an A380 after it's retired will be a Budweiser display. Nobody will take them. Why? They're just too big. For the same reason no one bought a lot of them. They're
0: just too big. So what do you do with Emirates when, they, when they're the largest single operator of, of that particular aircraft? They've got so many planes... At Emirates, they're actually flying an Emirate plane right now from Dubai to Oman. It's a 40-minute flight. That was not what that plane was designed to do.
7: No, no, it wasn't. And that design, airplane, for example, take a look at New York, London. That's a wrong route. These airplanes shine after 5,000 miles. Anything shorter than that, they just don't have the economics. But a a company like Emirates, they'll have theirs for the next 15, 20 years. Because they bought in. Because they bought in, and they can operate them, and they got routes they can operate them on. There just weren't that many Emirates Airlines out there in the world to buy enough of them. And we're probably not, and I'm,
0: I'm, I'm asking you a question. I already know you know the answer to but i got to ask it anyway. We're probably not going to see in our
7: lifetime any more four-engine planes. I, there's no need for it. We used to have four engines because, A, they, they weren't powerful enough without four. And second of all, there was a the fear that if one goes, we're going to go down. We have two-engine airplanes flying a, a, as much as four hours away from a, an airport, and everything's been safe.
0: So— The the four-engine planes are gone.
7: Well, 747s are gone. Well, they're Uh, going. Well, in the U.S., certainly. Uh, Airbus A340s, which had four engines, gone. And, of course, the earlier generation, they're all either carrying cargo or they've been scrapped. And the biggest
0: anachronism of all, of course, is Air Force One, because under federal law, no U.S. president can fly on anything less than a four-engine plane that's built in America. That only leaves the Boeing 747, so they're leaving that production line open long enough to finish two of those planes,
7: and, uh, and then after that, I don't think they're going to build them anymore. Well, you know, there, there is some cargo demand for them. The 747-8 has a very slow cargo demand, yeah. so you're looking at th- two or three years. But as far as passengers go, no. And the A380, I'm, I still think they're going to be a cargo plane. Uh, you know, a uh, UPS tried to order as a cargo plane, and they decided it was too big. Because even for them, even for them, and FedEx too, and it take yeah, because it takes time to unload and load an airplane and turn it around. You know, this is you know my father's company flew cargo in in Vietnam, and they found out that larger airplanes did not work, small ones did.
0: And so, if you want to go see an A380 outside of the Emirates in the next two or three years,
7: go to a desert near you. At, well, or or a Budweiser display, one or the other. <laughs> You're hung up on Budweiser, aren't you? I mean, it's big, 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 you know. Does that come with the Clydesdales? It, it, with the Clydesdales, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's it's cat food. Let it go.
0: No, I <laughs> actually, <laughs> but I actually like flying the A380. I, I, I enjoy it.
7: Yeah, it, everybody, I've never met anybody who hasn't liked it. See, it's a quiet airplane. It's a very comfortable airplane. It's big, but that so what? I mean, I'm sure the, the Pan Am Clippers that went across the uh, Pacific before World War II were very comfortable, too. Right, but they just didn't add up on the terms of the economics. No, they didn't. They made five of them too. That was the end of it.
0: Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away.
7: If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's
0: fly. Let's fly away. Come
7: fly with me, let's float down to Peru.
0: Coming up, our extended conversation with the editor-at-large for National Geographic Traveler, Costas Christ. My next guest has turned into a regular on this show, whether you like it or not. He's actually the editor-at-large for National Geographic Traveler and always has something interesting to say about not just general topics, but how they actually impact you in your daily lives. And, of course, every time and just about everywhere you travel. His name, Costas Christ.
6: How are you, sir? I'm fine. Happy to be here, Peter.
0: Uh, you know, Every year we seem to have certain buzzwords. It's ecotourism or sustainability. You and I have like, talked them to death. But the one that is on everybody's mind um, and in the news, I mean, every time you turn the page of a front page of a newspaper— You're seeing something happening in one of the European hotspots, one of the Asian hotspots. They're either closing a beach or banning certain kinds of traveler behavior or, in some cases, banning certain kinds of vehicles uh, from entering the harbor sometimes. It's all about, under this umbrella called, overtourism. So that's our buzzword for the week. I'm going to let you jump all over it.
6: Well, um, look, uh, I think the first thing we need to keep in mind, while it may be the buzzword of the week and the uh, term of the year uh it's neither new uh and it's been around and we're just seeing it really bub up to, uh, bubble up to the surface so what do i mean by that well um i mean this 1987 uh, i took a photograph in ngorengo crater in tanzania of a traffic jam a traffic jam in ngorengo crater one of the world's most iconic wildlife uh national parks and reserves um that was a result of overtourism then and they started working on it right after that uh, the first global campaign on overtourism was in the Galapagos in That's 1992 right. and they in fact
0: after that they 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 basically enacted and then enforced new regulations on number caps number of ship caps you may you may anything you want
6: And, you know, frankly, uh, Peter, you know, if we really want to stretch it back, I mean, I grew up on a uh, barrier island off the coast of New Jersey. The year-round population in the winter was about 1,100, and we swelled up to 26,000 in the summer in a one-mile square beachfront area. Well,
0: we have the same issue where I live in the summer, Fire Island, another barrier beach. In the winter, the population, the full-time population on an island that's 32 miles long is about 250 people. In the summer, it could be 250,000.
6: So, with that in mind, um, what we're really in is an evolution of the travel and tourism industry in a couple of ways. So, we're starting to see the proverbial chickens, uh, what do they say, coming home to roost or something like that. And by that, I mean this. In 1950, you've heard me say before, 1950, the first year they kept on the movement of travelers or tourists, there were 25 million. Fast forward to February of this year, uh, 1.4 billion by 2030, we're talking $2 billion. So we're seeing a growth in numbers, and we're starting to see the impact now spread to more places. So hence, local people's lives are being affected. Environment is being affected. We know that just uh, days ago uh, in Venice, they banned large-scale cruise ships from Venice Harbor and being near the old port. You mentioned beaches closing in the Philippines. That took place They've closed uh, Thailand as well. uh, Exactly. So, what does it mean? It means this, as far as I'm concerned. The tourism industry needs to rethink the equation of what they consider tourism success. For the longest time, success was measured in growth of numbers. Hey, we went from 1 million to 5 million. Yes. Yeah, we succeeded. We succeeded. And then it was visitor spend. And visitors spend, which is important. But what we need to do, and this is where the sustainable tourism transformation comes into the picture, is begin measuring tourism success against the five, what I call the five key leaderships of destination stewardship, or the five keys to leadership of destination stewardship. What does destination stewardship mean? Well, pretty much like it sounds— a destination that takes care with how it plans and manages its tourism. What are those five keys? One, yes, the stuff you would think, environmentally friendly. We want that to be the case. Two, protection of nature. Three, protection of cultural heritage. Four, economic and social well-being of local people. Five, educating the visitor. When you get all of those things together, we start to see a more positive result.
0: But I want to I want to start at the at the rear of the line first with educating the visitor. How about educating the government, educating the private sector so that you don't have to worry about the
6: other four? I'm so happy you said that because right now, speaking of buzz terms, a lot of the talk, not surprisingly, on the part of the industry and the part of destinations, is oh we have over tourism because of the way Tourists behave. And that's true to an extent. But we also have over-tourism by the way destinations market themselves, the policies that governments either have or don't have in place that contribute to this.
0: We were talking about you know how you have to pay attention or you're going to lose it when it comes to over-tourism. So, Costas, who is paying attention?
6: Well, I wanna when we say If you don't pay attention, I just want to emphasize what I mean by that. Uh, At the end of the day, and Peter, you've heard me say this before, you know, what does the travel industry really sell? What do destinations sell? They sell nature, they sell culture. That's really the foundation of what this industry is. We go to cultural destinations for that, for culture. We want to go, you know, to places of the world where we have a sense of authenticity, where we get to know the local way of life. That's all cultural heritage in that sense. And of course... We talk about proverbial rooms for view, beautiful beaches, beautiful mountains, wonderful nature. So that is the product we trade in, and we need to pay attention to taking care of that product and the people who live there, which bring us right back to what you just asked me. So, for example, we know that the country of Slovenia is doing it well. In 2016, they won Green Destination of the Year. And they're a small
0: country that couldn't take
6: the numbers. They're a small country... Well, let's let's think about that for a moment, because Croatia is in the middle of an over-tourism crisis. And they're talking. Thank about you, Game of Thrones. <laughs> and they're talking about possibly closing parts of Croatia and Slovenia. And that's a, and Croatia is a very tiny country and yeah. Slovenia nearby is a tiny country. But they took a different direction. They took a different approach and they decided to. One, make sure that tourists were educated to the type of behavior they wanted. And by that, I mean respecting locals, being part of the heritage, enjoying the beauty. And they also decided to regulate and monitor how tourism developed. It wasn't just a free-for-all. It wasn't just write me a big check and you can have a hotel anywhere you want it. It was don't write us a big check and we'll tell you where we want a hotel based on what we need. And we'll tell you the limit of the number of rooms. There you go. Big Sur, California. Right now, Big Sur has become a little bit of a tension spot over over tourism. I was just in Big Sur last week. What's the good news? I sat down over four days and had meetings, large meetings, with residents, many of whom were upset about tourism, to talk through the issues, with business leaders who were concerned about, oh, my gosh, we're going to lose business if tourists don't come, with the municipality, meaning local government. About, hey, you know what? The the sky's not the limit with tourism. We need to think about what kind of regulations and infrastructure we have to prevent environmental damage. And I also met with the nonprofit community, the environmental groups, the various other organizations and community groups that are there for economic support and development. So the point is this when you bring all those players together, and try to have a civil conversation, because when I arrived, it was pretty tense. But after right. four days of discussions, what happened? They're sitting around the they table now. They finding common ground. They're finding common ground. And you know what? There is common ground to be found. And the other thing we just need to recognize, Peter, is that tourism needs to be planned and managed. Key words. It can't just run amok on its own. When it's planned and managed, we see the positive power of travel. It's not just about over-tourism harming places, but there are many parts in the world where tourism is the invitation that is changing poverty alleviation and giving people livelihoods. We wouldn't have the Serengeti or the Great Wildebeest migration if it wasn't for tourism, to give you an example when it comes to nature and wildlife.
0: Now, there are some ministers of tourism who think they've figured out the solution, over tourism by getting people to come in off season months. Is that really the answer?
6: It's a temporary fix, yeah. but you know, let's be realistic. Okay. Uh, I was listening earlier to somebody talking about Venice is beautiful in January, you know, uh, and there's nobody there. You'll have it all to yourself. Well, there's a reason people go in July and August. It's because it's a time of year when they have vacations, when their, their kids are out of school, when they maybe have a break. So, you know, not everybody can blast off in the middle of a school year and go off to Venice. So, But on the other hand, there are a lot of people who can. So there's something to be said by sharing tourism across different months, building shoulder seasons. That's a temporary solution. We need to think not just... What do we want to be in five years? What do we want to be in 10 years and 20 years? And what kind of policies do we need to have in place now so that when we look at tourism 20 years from now, we understand how it's going to be helping this destination?
0: It's about planning real numbers for real scenarios. When you just know that the numbers are going to increase, you got to even get 10%, 20%, 30% ahead of that if you're going to try to have some management over an over-tourism crisis.
6: Yes, uh, Peter. And one of the things that we look at is not, you know, for a long time, tourism uh, development was governed by this concept of carrying capacity. How many people can we get? You know, how many people can fit here? How many ships, buses? Whatever. And then all all of
0: a sudden, Venice became the clown car.
6: Well, what we need to do and what is beginning to happen is to take a concept that originally began in the environmental movement when they were applying it to landscapes, and it's called limits of acceptable change. And we need to apply that to the destination level. Limits of acceptable change says we come together as a community in a destination, and we say to ourselves... What do we want to look like in 50 years, and what are our limits of acceptable change before this place becomes something we don't want to call our home anymore? And we make sure that doesn't happen.
0: But then you've got a problem where the dry cleaner and the pizza guy and the hotelier and the restaurant owner go, well, wait a minute, how am I going to earn a living?
6: That's not to say that you're not going to earn a living, Peter, but the truth of the matter is I think we all understand that depending on the country, depending on the destination, yes, we want to decentralize. There are many parts of the world, you know, frankly, we're hearing this conversation about overtourism for a very good reason. But like I said at the start of our conversation, this isn't new. Overtourism can be chased back a long ways what we're not talking enough about and we should be is what i call under tourism if you have an over we have an under and there are vast parts of this world where we can begin to bring the positive the positive benefits of tourism and let's make sure we understand that when properly planned and managed tourism according to sustainable tourism development guidelines is a powerful force for making communities in the world a better place sure let's share that wealth Or as they say, share that love with other parts of the world. Uh, Why do we – we have to ask ourselves in the travel media, why do we have to always put, you know, the Eiffel Tower on the cover of magazines? I've worked at magazines that (laughs) say to me every year, I want the Eiffel – and it's not National Geographic, but have said, you know, oh, no, we've got – every year we got to have the the cover with the Eiffel Tower. Why? Why do we got to keep doing that and keep sending people by the crowds to these areas? How about we begin to talk about a different way of traveling, a way that respects a destination and then bring people to other incredible, beautiful parts of our planet and do it in a more responsible way? Well, part of the
0: overtourism, I think, can be defined as too much dependence on comfort zone, meaning people want to go to an American branded resort, have a cheeseburger, and think that they've actually seen the country. And you have too many, and then if you have the infrastructure basically trying to satisfy that demand, you got a built-in problem.
6: Well, I would say two things. One, for a long time, yeah, you know, people wanted to go and find American Hotel and, and go buy a cheeseburger, okay? Even if that was in an iconic food capital like, you know, Paris or Japan, all right? but Or Tokyo, for that matter. But I think what we're seeing today, Peter, is the emergence, and there's a lot of, of statistics to support this, emergence of a tourist that is looking— More for a connection with authenticity. In fact, the very concept of luxury travel is changing because people are beginning to associate luxury with having authentic experiences, eating local food, and staying in a hotel that actually speaks to the cultural destination you're in. And that's happening. It has happened. And we are seeing that. uh, I I think Bhutan is a good example of that. They created an entire model of tourism. Yeah, but they've limited it too. And they've limited it, too, because at the time they, when they developed their tourism in the late 70s, early 80s, they looked over at Nepal and they winced and they said, oh, my God, we don't want to see these kind of crowds. We're going to require a minimum spend of $250 a day, and we're going to put a cap on numbers. Now, should everybody on the planet be able to go to Bhutan? Maybe, but we might you know, just have to wait our turn. And that is the, there is the problem, wait
0: our turn. People don't want to wait.
6: Yeah, but, you know, we, we live on a fixed planet of resources we are on a finite planet peter and you know the only future for the travel and tourism industry is a sustainable future and that means investing in protecting the places we visit if we overrun them if we damage them and destroy them everybody comes up the loser we saw that in the philippines the Boracay Island. They closed it, and it graced the cover of every travel magazine. Best beach in the world in its day. Best sunset in the world. Crowds, unplanned tourism. What happened? They closed the island. One billion in revenue lost. Three hundred tourism businesses went underwater, devastating the local economy. That is not a solution. No, that's a declaration of war. That's right. And sustainable tourism and the principles behind it that we've spoken about which are now housed in the United Nations called the Global Sustainable Tourism Criteria. That is the antidote to over-tourism. So now, for
0: getting the word over in front of tourism, we have to define it. We have to define it in such a way that people understand what their responsibilities are every time they travel.
6: That's right. We need to educate the traveler. We need to get governments to begin to understand that you measure tourism success by its impacts on improving people's lives, protecting nature and culture, and also addressing climate change in the context of environmentally friendly practices. That music means we're out of time for the entire show. The best of 2019. But
0: get ready, everybody. The best of 2020 is about to happen next week. So we'll see you then.
2: You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com
1: survey. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings
6: Early and ad free on Wondery Plus starting May first.
4: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you.